Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Wyatt Doyle discusses the transformation of three Pulp magazines, Argosy, Adventure, and Blue Book, into men's adventure magazines. The talk was recorded on August 16, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'll ask your indulgence to begin with. This is actually, um, I, I have to credit Bob Dice with most of the research on this. Um, basically, what, what, we've, what we'd always heard about Pulp fans, I mean, we were Pulp fans, but we'd always heard about Pulp conventions was, yeah, they have no interest in men's adventure stuff. It stops at pulps, and anything beyond that is a, is, is a pretender to the throne. And so we were really, when we first, last year was our first year here, and we were really prepared for, we were prepared for some debates, some arguments, and it just turned out not to be the case at all. I, I feel like overall it seems like you guys look at this kind of fiction the same way we do, is kind of of a piece and, and, and of a continuum that's changed. I mean, the men's adventure magazines are, were not pulp magazines, but they were most certainly an outgrowth of pulp magazines, and they, they, had, they shared quite a bit of DNA in common. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Argosy, Adventure, and Blue Book, um, three, three top pulps, of course, that, that ended up becoming top men's adventure magazines. And we'll kind of walk through how they evolved into what we call the MAM, men's adventure magazine uh, format. So, um, some fans of classic pulp magazines have an issue with the term pulp, um, but if we're going to set aside debates about terminology, it's clear that uh, pulp DNA uh, is evident in other magazines that followed. It's the kind of thing that really, uh, you know it when you see it. I mean, here's a pretty good example here. Um, so, one of the clearest adventure, or examples is the men's adventure magazine genre. It emerged in the late 40s. Uh, really took shape in the 50s and flourished in the 50s and 60s, then started to fade away in the 70s. Um, the, the fading away took, took different, uh, different forms. In some cases, the magazines simply ceased publication. In other instances, the magazines emphasized the pinup photos and the cheesecake stuff into the more permissive uh, times where you could have full nudity. And the magazine, some of the magazines became more pornographic than anything. Um, uh, three of the top pulp magazines that pioneered the pulp genre and had the largest circulations and longest runs in, the cl in what we'll call the classic pulp format um, also pioneered the men's adventure magazine genre and they continued to have uh, among the largest circulations and largest runs in that realm. Uh, and those magazines are Argosy, Adventure, and Blue Book. Now, Argosy is generally considered to be the first pulp magazine, but it, it really didn't start um, as a true pulp in the strictest sense of the term as, as it would be applied later. Uh, when it was first created by Frank Muncy in 1882 uh, under the title The Golden Argosy, uh, it was essentially a, a dime novel style uh, story newspaper uh, for school-age kids. And it wasn't printed on uh, the rough pulp paper that, that ultimately gave the pulps their name. But um, after several years of less than stellar sales, 
Muncie seemed to realize that the, the juvenile readers were not connecting with this magazine, that maybe they outgrew the stuff that they had read as children. And also, the kids of that era had comparatively little money to spend, and a, a publication attract, uh, a targeting them really didn't, attra didn't attract the advertising dollars either. Uh, so in December 1888, Muncie renamed his tabloid The Argosy and began featuring fiction stories targeted to adults. And that version sold better. Um, in October 1896, Muncie began publishing The Argosy in a magazine format with uh, all fiction stories. This sold even better, but it lacked two final elements of classic pulps pulp paper, and painted covers. Um, the December 1896 issue was the first printed on the rough wood pulp paper that, that obviously gave the pulps their name. And the painted cover element was added in October 1905, making the Argosy the template for the, the classic pulp magazine. Uh, and Argosy continued in that basic format with changes, a couple of changes in size and name until the late 1930s. Uh, now, in the years leading up to World War II, Argosy began to include some news-style articles and other true stories along with uh, fictional fare. Now, some of these stories are about Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, their persecution of the Jews and the threat they posed to the world, that the Nazis posed to the world, or that they felt the Jews posed to the world. Uh, these foreshadowed the iconic evil Nazi stories and covers that became very common in the post-World War II men's adventure magazine genre. Um, now, when World War II broke out, Argosy began a slow but steady metamorphosis toward what would ultimately be recognized as the MAM format basically uh, what could be called a, a proto-MAM phase. Uh, fiction stories by top writers were still a major element of the magazine, but true and fictional war stories about the fight against the Nazis and Japanese became more common, as did other types of true or fact-based stories. Uh, for example, uh, the August 1942 issue uh, includes articles about General Douglas MacArthur, uh, an American war heroes, a saint story by Leslie Charteris, and an installment of the serialized publication of Gypsy Rose Lee's G-String Murders, um, <laughs> which later was the basis for a very early Barbara Stanwyck movie, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 1942, Argosy was sold to popular publications. Uh, the publisher of Argosy's longtime chief competitor, Adventure Magazine. Uh, the editors of popular publications continued Argosy's metamorphosis toward the MAM format. Now at the time, Adventure was also undergoing a transformation from a classic pulp mag to a men's adventure uh, magazine, and both were pioneering that genre. Um, Adventure was launched in 1910, and it soon became one of the top pulps. It helped solidify the pulp format of fiction stories penned by talented pulp writers, painted covers, and black and white line drawing art created by great pulp artists. Eventually, Adventure eclipsed Argosy in popularity, and by the mid-1930s, was the best-selling pulp. 
Now, like Argosy, uh, Adventure morphed into a men's adventure magazine after World War II. Uh, in April 53, it went from uh, digest size to eight and a half by 11, and it included new types of stories and interior art. Uh, on the cover, the subhead, the new magazine of exciting fiction and fact was added under the title. Uh, in October 1953, that was changed to the man's magazine of exciting fiction and fact. Now, another top pulp magazine that morphed into a men's adventure magazine was Blue Book. Now, Blue Book started out as the monthly story magazine in 1905. It was renamed the monthly story Blue Book magazine in 1906. From then until 52, it had various titles with the words Blue Book as the constant, uh, as the common denominator. Now, during World War II, Blue Book changed from digest size to standard eight and a half by 11. No? <laughs> oh, it wasn't, a, I apologize. A pulp size, okay. I stand corrected, happily. Please do shout out corrections. <laughs> I'll take them. Um, went to eight and a half by 11, and it started including fact-based articles along with the Pulp Fiction yarns. In 1951, it was uh, touted on the cover as Blue Book, the magazine of adventure in fact and fiction. In February 52, it was renamed Blue Book, one word instead of two, with the subtitle uh, adventure, adventure in fact and fiction, and became more of a men's adventure magazine than a pulp. By October 1960, that transformation was completed by a new owner, and the magazine was renamed Blue Book for Men. Uh, in their transformation to full-blown men's adventure magazines, Argosy, Adventure, and Blue Book kept key parts of their pulp DNA. Most notably, painted covers, pulpy action and adventure stories. But they added the elements that crystallized into the classic men's adventure format in the early 1950s. Now, the elements that the men's adventure format added included a heavy dose of true or at least fact-based stories about wars, crimes, scandals, news events, and other topics of interest to men, and painted interior illustrations and photographs rendered in halftones as opposed to the line art in classic pulps. Uh, they also added a third key part of the MAM recipe. <laughs> Uh, photos of attractive models and actresses wearing swimsuits, lingerie, or less. Uh, these cheesecake photos, aka pinup photos or glamour girl photos, uh, were already common in other magazines targeting men during World War II, including the U.S. Army's own weekly magazine Yank and men's magazines like Esquire. Um, indeed, as the MAM genre was taking uh, shape in the 50s, pinup pics were common in almost all men's magazines, as well as in various other types of periodicals. The thing about the men's adventure magazines, too, is that they were a very, um, they're, because their appeal was um, meant to be extremely direct and impactful, they um, made no bones about trying to work in elements from other popular magazines, whether popular men's magazines or simply popular magazines, that they could fold into the magazine. So you had a little hint of 
the celebrity scandal magazines. You had a hint of the hunting and fishing magazines that were so popular. And all these things were sort of mixed in with the basic pulp elements to create the men's adventure magazine format as, as it came to be understood. Um, now from a sales standpoint, uh, the metamorphosis of the metamorphoses of Argosy, Adventure, and Blue Book, and the rise of the men's adventure magazine genre in the 50s made a lot of sense. Their targeting, their content, it fit the times. Um, men's adventure magazines especially targeted military veterans, of which there were many. Um, 16 million male World War II vets, 15, or 5.7 million Korean War vets, and millions more Vietnam-era vets. Um, these were the readership that the magazines went after. Um, during the 1950s, as the classic pulp magazines began to fade away, the men's adventure magazine really took off. Now, during the 50s and 60s, more than 160 men's adventure magazines were launched. Like pulp magazines, some were short-lived. Some lasted years. Others, including the men's adventure magazine versions of Argosy, Adventure, and Blue Book, lasted for decades. Now, Argosy continued uh, the basic men's adventure magazine format until 1979, but switched to photo covers in the 60s and steadily increased its focus on stories about UFOs, the supernatural, uh, celebrities, and uh, monsters, monster, uh, cryptozoological phenomena. In fact, through the 50s and 60s, uh, men's adventure magazines played such a significant role in popularizing cryptozoological lore um, that uh, it led to us creating a book covering the subject called Cryptozoology Anthology. Um, whereas we initially thought that men's adventure magazines uh, covered things like uh, cryptological uh, subjects like the Yeti and Sasquatch and the Loch Ness Monster, what we came to realize in speaking with people who continue to, to study cryptozoological phenomena is these magazines were uh, a real candle in the window to their interest. Um, mainstream magazines really didn't have much time for, for Sasquatch stories or Yeti sightings, but men's adventure magazines, they were quick to try and grab attention. They saw this stuff as a sensational, sensationalist gold mine it was and really played it up. So in some cases, you had fictional stories that really pretty outrageous. In other cases, you had more stuff to say fact-based when you're talking about creatures that may or may not exist, but at least <laughs> evidence-based, I guess you'd call it. Um, adventure continued until 1971, and uh, in 67, it switched to mostly photo covers, and in the final years, it had as many pin-up or nude photos, uh, uh, photo spreads as action-adventure stories inside. Um, but oddly, the last few issues were, uh, were an attempt, a uh, failed attempt, to return to a more uh, classic pulp and men's adventure type format. Um, now, Blue Book ran until uh, 1975, May 1975, it kept the basic men's adventure magazine format. But in the final years, it did include more and racier uh, pinup photos inside and more uh, what we consider sexposés. Um, 
they also began recycling content, which was another unfortunate uh, turn of events for a lot of men's adventure magazines as, as the, they started to fade from the newsstand. Reprinting stories, reprinting articles was pretty much always a part of the magazines, but then we reached, we reached a point where they were reprinting entire magazines. Um, I guess expecting no one would notice, so the people really weren't following the magazines uh, issue to issue. Uh, but stories, uh, anthologies about uh, men's adventure, uh, anthologies collecting men's adventure magazine stories, artwork, it's, it's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, there are a lot of reasons that this may be. Uh, for one thing, the pulps, the timing of the pulps seem to synchronize well with the, uh, with the, 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 the interest in nostalgia that's, that emerged in the 60s and was such a big part of the early 70s. Um, I feel like the men's adventure magazines never really had a chance to get a second win like that because the men's adventure magazines were still in the stands as that revival was occurring. They weren't something that people were nostalgic for. They were something that, that maybe people were getting sick of after a point. So it really, they, it's only now that they seem to be getting a little bit more attention, a little bit more of a moment in the sun. And uh, I can tell you that as somebody who has always haunted thrift stores and library sales and used bookstores and looking for anything out of the ordinary, that I tended to find far more classic pulp magazines than men's adventure magazines. I don't know why that is exactly. I don't know if it's that people held on to the pulps and people tended to throw away the men's adventure magazines. I don't know, but, but sightings in the wild were very, very rare occurrence. Um, and it's now that I feel like, um, just from the conversations I've had, folks coming over the table and talking, it seems like these were magazines that a lot of people were very aware of the existence of. And a lot of times it was, I, I've heard so many stories now, and I got two more this morning about the uncle who had a drawer with them under the thing, or the father kept them on the high shelf, and occasionally I'd be able to sneak a look at one, or also about the way that people would try and sneak looks at them at the drugstore and they'd be, before they'd be chased off by the pharmacist and send them the comic book rack. So there was definitely an awareness of these, but I don't think there was a, a, very, um, a very nuanced understanding of what they were, or it didn't seem like that there were that many people who had, who had um, spent much time actually reading the magazines or trying to, to really get a handle on their place in, uh, in the history of pulp fiction in general or just... Uh, to me, it seems a very natural extension. Again, I was growing up in the 70s, and for me, my initial discovery of Doc Savage was via the Bantam reprints. And to me, I didn't have a clear picture in my head that, and the same for the Avenger. And of course, the shadow seemed to always be uh, in the culture. I guess I, I grew up uh, listening to a lot of old time radio, so the shadow was never far uh, from my ears. And, I think that as I was reading that stuff, I was also discovering stuff like the Destroyer and reading through them. So for me, I, it's, it, it, did, it never seemed to be a, a much of a challenge for me to connect the dots between classic traditional pulp fiction and subsequent action adventure writing or men's, and then now into men's adventure stuff. So I don't know, uh, it seems to me that it's all of a piece and I understand the, the preference of one over the other, but uh, there's certainly a lot of great work across the board, and it's, it's, we're so glad to, 
be here to get a chance to to get your thoughts as as people who deeply uh, deeply invested in in classic pulp, and I love hearing this hearing people's stories about how they came into this material or what they see as the differences uh, between the classic pulp and men's adventure stuff, strengths and weaknesses. Um, that's really about all, that's all I have to say about the whole thing. Um, I, I hope you guys will stop by the table and visit it. As Mike said, we've got this, our new book is a, as a, probably be coming out in the fall, but we've got copies here at Pulp Fest. We did a, a very limited run for Pulp Fest with a special book plate in them. And Ava Lind, I'll just give you a, a, a moment on Ava Lind. Um, she's a fascinating woman who, She's Swedish royalty. She's a Swedish countess who came to the United States at age 12. Um, learned English the first summer she was here so that she could go to school that September. So she was a pretty precocious youth. Um, moved to New York City, got involved in modeling pretty young, and soon became a top artist model for men's adventure artists. Uh, she also became a top pinup model. So you'd have situations where she might be in an issue as the model for a story or as, as the model for multiple characters in an illustration. And then five pages later, here's a pinup spread of her photos. Um, so she really did, her career ultimately touched on every single aspect of popular culture in the 20th century, from the, pulp, from the men's adventure pulps to paperback covers for uh, a great many publishers um, posing on album covers, you'd always see some kind of beautiful woman staring off into the distance on, to try and move copies of chamber music or jazz records. And um, when she did step away from the, uh, from the cameras, she went into radio <laughs> to complete the picture, but not just any radio. She said, oh, I took a job at a, at a radio station. Yeah, it was Wolfman Jack's station. It was around 69. I mean, this is when Wolfman Jack's station was, was on everybody's lips. Uh, so she's one of those people who's kind of been in the, in the right place at the right time for um, so much of the, of the men's adventure genre and beyond. So I hope you'll stop by and check out the book and come by and chat, check out our other books. And, and uh, please let me know what your thoughts are on, uh, on, the pul on classic pulps versus men's adventure magazines because uh, the, the more insight that we can get from, from folks who, who are, I consider expert level <laughs> scholars on pulp material, um, the, the better it is for us to, uh, to create our, our work trying to understand the linkages among all these magazines. So thanks very much for your attention and have a great rest of your pulp festival. Come on by and see us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would like to see uh, uh, put out a large book, an encyclopedia of the 160 men's adventure magazines, sort of each entry would cover, you know, a county of the work, yeah. what dates it, it was published, and maybe some comments about the quality of the fiction of the article. You know, we desperately need a book about the men's adventure magazines. I mean, we got books about the false. Right. We need something about this field of 160 different titles. There's nothing there. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like all over the place. I have hundreds of men's adventure magazines. 
but I, I would love to see a book, a reference book. And you guys are in a position, I think, to really read this book. Have you ever thought about uh, publishing such a book? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it's very necessary. And are you you're familiar with Bill Devine's guide? Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a lot about taking Devine's guide and trying to expand it along the lines you're talking about. Um, yeah, that's definitely another vote for that moves it closer to happening. Um, I think it is something that's going to happen. It may be something that happens tied into the first book we did. Uh, it was called Weasels Rip My Flesh, basically focused on, it was an anthology of fiction with commentary that focused on the all-star writers who wrote for the men's adventure magazines and some of the cream of their work. Uh, Mario Puzo, Bruce J. Friedman, uh, just the list goes on and on. We want to do a follow-up to that that's more of an overview of the genre like that is. And what we were thinking is that we'd have some kind of supplement, augmented version of Divine's Guide as part of that book. Now, I don't know. It might need to be its own book. I mean, there is a lot to say about it, and there's a lot to cover. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely of interest and, and is something that I think we will do. Yes? Yeah. I don't know if you guys try to sell libraries or not, but the books about the pulps being published in the late 60s and early 70s when I was a kid, that's how I began. Books like Advent, doing the Requiem for Astounding and the Moskowitz histories, things like that. That's how I learned about that. That's why I'm here today and I have this huge collection now. So if you can perhaps find some way to market libraries, put in advertising some library journals or things that librarians read or do direct marketing yeah. libraries. I, I would suggest that that starts the thing moving. That's a great idea. The one, I, I would say the one thing that's kept us from doing something that's more scholarly focused like that up till now is the fact that when we started doing these books, we didn't know what the audience was for them or if there was an audience. Like I said, what we knew of, the, as outsiders to the pulp community, what we knew is we'd heard, no, no, they're very hostile to men's adventure magazines. <laughs> they don't like them at all. They don't want to talk about them. They, they don't. So our attitude with the first book and with a lot of the books has been, what can we do to just get anybody's attention with these books? What, what, how can we present this work in a way that's an easy in for people who have either never heard of it or prejudiced against it for whatever reason? Um, and so that's the tack that we've been taking, trying to find subjects that are of a general interest that the men's adventure magazines really zeroed in on or did something special with. But, um, but obviously the series is, has become pretty successful and we're real pleased about that. And so it is a good time for us to start thinking about, okay, let's do a scholarly, a more scholarly work that's more focused to a serious collector. Whereas a lot of our books, I feel like can be, they can be enjoyed by either a, a serious aficionado or a newbie, but when it comes to the nuts and bolts stuff like that, you're right, we haven't done a ton of that. So yeah, that is a good, good notion for the future. I'm larger than familiar with these, this group of magazines, mm -hmm. but at the point where they switched from being a pulp to men's adventure magazine, did many or any of the writers and artists follow them into that change? Yeah, well, listen, a lot of the, as far as the pulp, the pulp writers, I would actually look to you guys to let me know who was, who was uh, more prolific in the pulps um, that went in. Because the men's adventure magazine writers overwhelmingly were simply working writers looking for work in any 
kind of format that was going to pay them. Uh, one of the interesting things about the men's adventure magazines, to me, the, the writers and artists for it, is the fact that this stuff is considered this very testosterone-heavy, very manly, man's point of view, man, 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 macho stuff. And yet, most of these same writers were also writing for the romance magazines, the true confession magazines, which were targeted to very, very womanly women, very feminine kind of... And so, it's interesting that, that these, a lot of these writers seem to have a handle on what made for an, a compelling story, what made for a compelling narrative, whatever it was in their voice, uh, in, the, in the writer's voice they chose to deploy, they were definitely connecting, they were able to connect with a wide and very, a wide range of very specific groups of people. And so, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I'm confident they bled in. Part of the problem too with the, with the pulps, uh, I'm sure this is an issue, with the men's adventure magazines, it's definitely an issue, is trying to narrow down who's who. Uh, there were writers who wrote under their own names. There weren't house names per se in men's adventure magazines. But it's possible. It's possible there were, and we haven't hit on them yet. Um, none of the none of the editors and writers we've talked to have said, "Oh, we did that under that name." You know, everybody wrote under that. We don't really have any evidence of that so far. But yeah, because the the scholarship on this is so thin on the ground, um, we are literally learning something new, and in some cases, something shockingly new with every book we do. Like the cryptozoology book was the perfect example where it's like, wow, we knew that they were a part of it. We had no idea they were this much a part of it. And so, yeah, even though we've done, shoot, I think we've done 12 books now. And I think Dice, Bob Dice probably has one of the largest collections of uh, men's adventure magazines on the planet. There's still stuff we're learning all the time. I don't know, is that the case with pulps? Or is, I mean, is there still discoveries to be made in terms of the scholarship in, in the pulp arena? Anybody? Yeah, it's still a living, it's a living pursuit. In other words, it's a, it's an evolving. I love it. Yeah, there's there's a, I, I can tell you this. If you're into the mystery, there's a lot a lot of mysteries in men's adventure magazines as we try to figure out who's who, how did this happen, what happened here, why this, why this type of story, why are weasels attacking this man. I mean, these are all the questions we wrestle with. <laughs> yes, sir. There's no, uh, I guess if you're going to say who would be the closest, you might say somebody like Walter Kalin, who was a really prolific writer for the men's adventure magazines. He also wrote for some of the uh, True Confessions magazines and, the, and women's magazines at the time uh, under pseudonyms. Walter Kalin was a, was a guy who was almost born to write for men's adventure magazines. His, his specialty was intense, hard-hitting action, really lightning-paced stuff. And he worked in just about every genre of adventure fiction that you can imagine in the magazines. At the same time, he published a few novels under his own name. None of them went anywhere, and he never seemed to be too pleased with them. So he was a guy who was almost a creature perfectly suited to men's adventure magazines as, as a writer, and maybe not that well suited to almost any other kind of uh, setting. 
And Robert F. Dorr is another writer who is ex an extremely prolific contributor to men's adventure magazines. Uh, we, did, we did a book of Kalen stories. We also did a book of Dorr stories. Robert Dorr's emphasis was on military, uh, war, conflict, especially aerial combat and uh, aircraft. His stories are very interesting and fascinating to read and stirring and moving and exciting because he was a fantastic writer. He had real understanding of the nuts and bolts of the military and of, a, of the technology of war. And uh, he also had tremendous respect for the men and women in the military and his stories reflect that. Um, they are ex as exciting as the more wild and, and scandalous stories, but they're also respectful and, uh, and very, in most cases, very, very moving. Now, Robert F. Dorr went on to write a lot of nonfiction, a lot of it uh, dealing with aircraft and the Air Force, um, but I don't know if you'd call him a typical anything either. Um, Bruce J. Friedman, who's a, a, a well-known playwright and screenwriter and novelist, he was an editor for Magazine Management Company for, for some time, and under him, Walter Kalin flowered. Um, Mario Puzo was one of his editors and writers. Um, Bruce J. Friedman, he didn't write that much for the magazines, but he clearly was steering them in a very interesting direction, and the people he was bringing in, he was also, he was, a, he was very good at picking people and hiring people. And, and he sort of knew how to put a magazine together from all the right ingredients. Um, so yeah, it's hard to say what a typical profile would be. I mean, there's, there's three guys who, are, who, who loom pretty large and I don't know that any of them are, are all that similar. And they all enjoyed success. I mean, Bruce J. Friedman's greatest success wasn't as a men's adventure editor and Robert Doerr's greatest success wasn't as a men's adventure writer. But the work he did for that is just, it's unforgettable. Yes, sir. Looking at these, these are pulps that evolved and metamorphosed into men's adventure magazines. Mm -hmm. But I've not seen magazines up there like my dad and nephew. Saga and True, were those created as competition to these once they had metamorphosed? And did they so balkanize the, uh, the market for these that there wasn't enough for any one to survive, so they all fall apart at once. Could that have happened? That's an interesting theory. I don't know that that's accurate because the fact is, yeah. So it's just a hypothesis. Yeah, I, I mean, the, true is true is yeah true is around forever. Late thirties, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing, men's men's adventure magazines. I mean. There were over 160 titles, I think, of men's adventure magazines, just in, in, a, in a very tight span of time. And it wasn't a situation where some of them might have lasted a few issues. You know, some of them lasted one issue. Some of them were attempts by publishers to take to tackle a different market. And so they were sort of a hodgepodge of a few other issues that came out under one. So there's a magazine called Clash that exists in one issue. Well, that, that's why I'm wondering. I yeah. Mean, Basically after, I see what you're saying. Basically after, I mean, it was really, the 50s is really when the MAMs took flight. 
and by the, these these magazines were so well established by then. It's it was it was the deal where they were the they were the big boys on the block at the start of it, and they maintain their standing throughout. There were like anything, there are tiers to it. I mean, there there are definitely the men's adventure magazines that we look to as saying, well, these are a higher quality. These seem to have been approached with greater care, as opposed to some of the other ones. I mean, the 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 general perception of men's adventure magazines seem to be. Oh, those are the ones where the Nazis have all the women chained up. That was definitely a part of the sweat. People say the sweats. Oh, the sweat magazines. But the thing about the sweats is that's actually what we consider to be the lower tier uh, magazines. The, the stuff that was really trashy. I mean, some of it gloriously trashy, but, but no, no real lofty ambitions there beyond exploitation. Um, that's become what's colored the, the, the whole field for some people, but it's really just a sliver. And I guess because it's some of the more outrageous stuff, that's the stuff that tends to endure because people are struck by the images and they'll scan them and throw them on the internet. Look at this crazy stuff, you know? So that's the stuff that ends up, people believe that's what it's all is. And it's definitely a part of it. I'm not suggesting, I'm not trying to whitewash the history of the magazines, but yeah, these guys were, they, they, these, these were the classier uh, men's Adventure magazines as they became Men's Adventure magazines. Yes, sir. Well, a comment if I may, the obvious yeah. reason why magazines like Blue Book Adventure and Argosy retained those names was instead of being called the Weasel Ripping Quarterly, because they already had established newsstand presence, name recognition, and more importantly, postal mailing permits. Uh, <laughs> you're absolutely right. That's a great point. Yeah. So any magazine that comes along as a competitor has to start from scratch, basically. Yeah. Well, look at, we're talking about Blue Book. Look at Blue Book. I mean, Blue Book went through all these title changes, but they kept that Blue Book. I mean, there was no mistaking what you're getting at, if, the, if Blue Book was your magazine. In the early 70s, my dad subscribed to Argosy for a while, thinking it was the Argosy that he, his father read in the 30s. He was surprised. Oh, I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, okay, we're talking about Bruce J. Friedman. Bruce J. Friedman's son, Josh Allen Friedman, is also a very talented writer and novelist. Um, Swank magazine in, I wish I could pin down this year, 80, 82, 83, they were celebrating their 25th anniversary. Now, um, Swank was a, a men's adventure magazine. That's how it began. And at, by the time that its 25th anniversary rolled around, Swank was 100%. That was a behind the counter at the 7-Eleven magazine. That was a top shelf at the newsstand behind things. Um, and Josh went back and interviewed some of the Swank vets, some of the magazine management company vets, and they did a piece in, in the latter day Swank about it. But again, it's one of those things where if, if you grew up in a certain period, Swank was never anything but a, a porno mag, you know? And then to go back and find that Swank was like, no, Swank actually was a pretty good men's adventure magazine in its day. It's very, it's jarring. But yeah, the title, you can't deny the, the power of a title and perception of readership. Yeah, uh, Blue Book, though, did stop publishing in maybe March, April of 56 from the McCall Corporation, and then restarted in 59 or 60 under an entirely new company uh. So to say it continued on without interruption would be correct. Oh, thank you for the clarification. Yeah, I didn't realize. It definitely, it's, it's, it's a pattern we've seen where magazines temporarily seem to cease publication, change hands, and then begin again. So Blue Book's one of them. Thank you. Question there. Was that because of the collapse of the American news company distribution system? No, that started in 57, and 
McCall stops this in 56, but in sales figures or whatever, but yes. One of the things still happens, the amazing stories relaunched a year or two ago. Right. Mm. I guess numbers change and interest change. I, I don't know if the title, if McCall sold the title yeah. or if they just took it over and McCall didn't really care one way or another. I would guess they had the license at least. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Not sure about Saga Magazine, actually. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to throw a guess out there because I'm not actually sure. But oh, a McFadden publication. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I don't know what the what ultimately. I don't know what the circumstances were at the regarding the end of Saga's run. <laughs> We will work on it. Yes. What kind of circulation figures did these MAM magazines have in, say, mid-60s or whatever? Very tough to pin down. Um, it's, I definitely don't have it in front of me, but it would have varied very, very wildly um, from the stuff that, that was, like I say, the, the stuff that was on the higher end, like uh, the, the magazine, magazine management company stuff. Those circula their circulation would have been much higher, but... I don't have those numbers. Sorry. Any sense as to whether they were primarily being sold on the newsstand or by, uh, by subscription? My sense is newsstand sales. Um, it's interesting because when we talk to the editors of the magazines and the writers, they very often say we had no clue who who we were writing for. They really didn't know. They said that they had this uh, Bruce J. Friedman that had described it uh, somewhat comically about the idea. He said. Well, we had this vague idea of who this guy was who we were writing for, but we really, you know, we, we figured he liked this and he was interested in that, but he didn't have much time for that. And they just, uh, they just took, took their best shot, really. I mean, the, the main thing that, that you see about the, some of the better men's adventure magazines is, they, is the tone. They have a very, it's a very, the, the, the tone is very convivial. It's a, I, I've called it a barracks room tone because uh, it's, it's very much like, Hey, pal, <clears throat> you want to know about this? You want to know what the deal is with these drugs the kids are taking? We're going to explain it to you in here. Oh, these beatniks? We've got the dirt on the beatniks. Read this and we'll fill you. And, of course, half the time it's pure conjecture or bullshit. But, you know, that's the it – sold, it sold issues. If you could put a, a splashy headline on your cover that said, like, we can explain a – here's the secret behind the beatnik movement. You know, it's like, oh, people want to understand this stuff. And the men's adventure magazines – um, they sort of they provided an, a, a means for people to take a look at controversial or um, difficult subjects in a way that was graspable, that felt very graspable, that felt because you know, a lot of these there were a lot of editorials, there were a lot of we I mentioned the sex boses, those were things like are you a nymphomaniac? You know, like here's how you can tell. You know, it's like stuff like that, which is like. You know, it's pretty, that's pretty crazy stuff. But at the same time, when you, considering the lack of open discourse about changes in the culture, about sex and sexuality. <laughs> what we should do is we should have a questionnaire at the table. <laughs> yes, sir. There is a saying, be careful what you wish for, you may get it, while we're talking about doing scholarly studies, laying scholarly. Remember what they used to say about science fiction? That at a certain point, people were saying, it's time to get science fiction out of the classroom and back in the gutter where it belongs. 
<laughs> I read a book by an English professor yeah. in, in, in a contemporary one right now who approached it from the race and class studies perspective and uh, <coughs> men's adventure magazines and cryptozoology. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like reading an account of some upper class snob British imperialist visiting some relatively advanced uh, third world country, but coming back and talking about what filthy, dirty, ignorant uh, natives there were in this place. Right. And, and looking down his nose at them the whole time as he wrote about it, this guy approached Men's Adventure magazines in this way, and the people who read them, and they were all, oh yeah, you know, well, these it's, were all working class, yeah. They weren't very bright, didn't read very much, and they had low levels of intellectual capability and interest, blah, blah, blah. Whereas you're saying, you know, it could be able to meet all sorts of guys, and, and a lot more interesting things. There were some tracks, yeah. there's a lot of really good, I mean, this guy was like, well, blue, know, blue, oh, look at the filthy natives down there. Blue collar so readers. It's begun to happen already, with yeah. a very limited sense, and I just hope we don't open the door to... Well, there's always going to be over-intellectualizing. I mean, look, the fact is, blue, a blue-collar readership doesn't mean an ignorant readership. It doesn't mean a dumb... Oh, yeah, I'm not preaching to you, but that's the thing. It's what I find continually uh, intriguing from a cultural, sociological standpoint about men's adventure magazines is we're getting some kind of insight into uh, the, the thinking, the attitudes of a group that's always been marginalized and that has certainly the the history of these magazines hadn't been hasn't been significantly preserved in any way that's accessible to us to where we can make our own decisions about it unless you actually seek them out collect the magazines um, that's I mean that's part of our mission with the books is to just make it an easy way for people to kind of get a handle on what these things are about and decide for themselves there's plenty of trash in these magazines that's, I've had some people say I tried to read some of them I can't get through them well, they're not all gold, you know what I mean? So we're, we're trying to pan, just kind of pan the gold for you a little bit and, and help you see what makes them special, but I'm not going to make any claims that these are, are necessarily all brilliant or, or all overlooked unnecessarily. I mean, there's, it, these, were, these were, but when you're talking about an ex, a very commercial product that their whole goal is, we just want you to grab us off the shelf and buy us and take us home, I mean... Most of all, they were fun. That's what the yeah. academics always try to squeeze out of anything. That after a while, they get up yeah. to be able to write papers for tenure. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the graphic design of the men's adventure magazines. Because when I started looking into them, I was very surprised by how the format evolved from the pulp magazines, where everything even when the pulps did some nice design, it was still pretty standard column text, column yeah. text, and in the men's adventure magazines, you had graphics going across pages. And also, maybe you could tell me how this policy ensued. I, I noticed there was one Michael Avalone story mm -hmm. I saw. Double page illustration, headline, byline, teaser blurb. The story begins, and there's roughly three to six lines, and it said, continued on page 46. The men's adventure magazines seem to get really good at that. You get two sentences and they jump. And the beginning, as you're turning page after page, you're thinking, wow, look at all this great art. But then you get to the middle of the magazine, it's all ads and text. Yeah. Well, let's see. Okay, first things first. Um, well, t 
take me back to your first point again. The graphic design. The graphic design. Well, yeah. What you've got is, it's again, I think what, what that comes from is the influence of all these other magazines that were selling really well, that were really popular. I mean, when you look at even magazines like Confidential, stuff like that, it's magazines that were really popular, that were uh, contemporaries of the men's adventure magazine, you see a lot of that slicker design and that more graphically uh, intensive stuff. I think that's really what the key, because I agree, I, th I love the, the design of the magazines. I mean, we try to emulate it a little bit in the books we do. The next, the book that, uh, one of the books we're working on now is a collection of stories by Robert Silverberg, who, in addition to writing everything else under the sun, of course, wrote for Men's Adventure magazines for a time, and in fact, there was an entire uh, Men's Adventure magazine that only ran for about five issues or so called Exotic Adventures, and I think three of them were composed entirely by Silverberg, from the editorial to the everything in it is Silverberg. And it, yeah, exactly. Silverberg answering letters from Silverberg. But, um, and so as part of that, I've been teaching myself to design like a men's adventure magazine because I wanted to, it's gonna be kind of a facsimile look. And man, it is, it's, it's a lot of fun. As a designer, it's a lot of fun to kind of walk in those shoes a little bit and get a sense of that style. But yeah, you're right. It's, there, there's some really gorgeous design in that. And I really think it's because they were kind of swiping from what they felt were the best, you know, to make their product. And the, your second point was about the, the, the way they break up the stories? Yeah, some of their yeah. one-page illustration, headline, byline, blurb, and then four lines. And then it said, continued on page 46. I thought, well, the story just started. How can you jump it? Yeah, I don't quite know what the, I don't know what the, if there was a, a logic behind that that I'm missing as far as like the appeal, because once you got the magazine, they got you. It's like, they don't need to keep stringing you along, but. I theorized anybody at a bus stop or a subway depot would start looking through it and that this looks great, they jump on the train. <laughs> I'm sure that, I'm sure that factored into the thinking. I mean, that was the thinking. How do we get, how do we get more? How do we get more attention? I mean, you see it in the colors. You see it in the colors the artists would choose, the cover artists would choose. Um, I, I guess I wonder, were the illustrators being told to draw or were the writers being told, write it like this so we can jump it? What, what came first, the illustration of the story in some cases? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, because it, it both happened. You would have, uh, artists would come in, uh, they'd meet with the art director. The art director would have uh, some kind of a one, two, three sentence summary of the story. And they might say to the artist, here's the basic idea. What we want is it's got to be this guy doing this. We want him down front. Then we want a, a, a really sexy woman with a kind of blouse falling off. They'd give him a rough idea. But after a point, these guys were such pros. They'd go in and go, they'd get a basic rough, of, uh, of an even rougher notion of what it was to be. And they'd just deliver. They knew, well, after a point, like, the, like any pro, you know what's expected. You know what to deliver. Now, with the covers, there was a significantly more guidance from the art director as far as what had to happen. There's an artist we, we worked with until he passed recently, Samson Pollan, who is primarily known for his interior illustrations. So his work has been less seen as a result because everybody sees the covers. The covers are what end up in magazines or on the internet. The interior is less so. Um, Pollan always said, he much preferred the interiors. The interiors, they'd give him two pages to play with. He had a widescreen frame. He said they also didn't ride him as much about like how they had to be or what this needed. 
he found it to be, he said, you'd get a little more money for doing a cover, for sure. But he said, the, for him, the additional money wasn't really worth it. He, liked, he, he traded the extra money for freedom and seemed much happier for it. Now, there are other guys who dominated the covers, you know, and they obviously were really good at their jobs, but they, you know, they just had different, different priorities as artists. Yes, sir. One characteristic of the cult magazine as a group is that they uh, often inspired a lot of cultural spin-offs, uh, movies, serials, mm -hmm. comics, uh, things like that. Uh, I can't think of any example from the MAM group that did the same sort of thing. Am I wrong, or has, did they just specialize themselves out of the ability to be that culturally influential? No, what happened is they, um, they were just ripped off a lot. Um, Mario Puzo uh, essentially hatched the concept of the A-Team, the TV series The A-Team, in his stories. Um, very similar setup, it's in there. He never got credit, he never pursued it. Um, there are a lot of instances like that. And there's just as much give and take. Um, bikers were a frequent menace in the, in the men's adventure magazines. And what we found researching our book about that was they fed each other. The, pulp, the men's adventure magazines would use stills from the movies and claim they were news photos. Meanwhile, the movies would say, well, we want them to look like this, and they'd be pointing to a men's adventure magazine, and it's got to be something like this. And I mean, you know, and oh my God, the perfect storm. A returning veteran, usually Vietnam vet, has to square off against a biker gang. You ever seen that movie? Because that came right out of men's adventure magazines. Because, I mean, it's their two great loves. Military loners <laughs> taking out a whole team of bikers. So, I mean, I think what happened was the, I think the attitude about the magazines, even by the people who were, who were creating them was, well, this is disposable. You know, we're just churning it out. We're just churning it out. It wasn't a situation where when they saw something, even something really close to it pop up on television or in movies, nobody really chased it down. They really didn't. You would see stuff, I mean, there would be, um, it, it went the other way a few times where they would reprint something that was really, it was a best-selling novel. They would reprint some excerpt from it or a condensation of it and call it a book bonus. And then there were a lot of book bonuses where no book existed. They were simply <laughs> lengthy stories or novellas and they would say, oh, this is the $1.95 bestseller you've been hearing about. Well, it didn't exist. <laughs> that happened a lot. And there were always things in the magazines. One thing you will see over and over again in men's adventure magazines is this, the watch for the movie of this coming soon, which, as you said, never happened. I mean, it was all just get, it got people excited. People like things that are, that are going to be movies. So they were saying, oh, this must be an extra good story if the movies want it, you know. It was a marketing ploy. All right. Thank you very much. Some great questions. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.